again, I want to welcome you to our gathering today. Thank you uh, for gathering with us. I don't know you. I'm Kyle, one of the pastors here at Center Church. And man, we, uh, man, we're glad to gather. And as we get settled in, go ahead. If you have your Bibles with you, open it uh, to Nehemiah chapter 13, where today uh, we're going to finish our time uh, in this revive and rebuild series uh, that we've been walking through since the beginning of the year, looking uh, at this book. And so, uh, man, today, as we kind of close out our time, we're going to look at the response of God's people, both during and after the dedication of the wall. And so as we uh, really jump in there, I, I want to kind of begin our time by reminding us of, uh, of two things uh, that, that we've seen from this series, that kind of themes that have been uh, really marks for us as we've worked through our time in Nehemiah. And, and then I want to present really kind of one thing that we're going to see in our time today. And so the first thing that we've seen, a, a theme that we, from week one, we've shared this, we've talked about this, uh, is that Nehemiah is a story that is more about the revival and rebuilding of the people of God than it is about the rebuilding of walls. I don't know about you, but man, growing up, like if I heard about or anything about Nehemiah, all I ever thought of were the walls, right? Like that was the main focus. But really, uh, as you journey through not just the book, but as you look at the redemptive story throughout the scripture, what you see is that, man, everything God does is so that he might, uh, man, uh, be about his people. And so that's what we've seen uh, throughout this story is that uh, it has been a story that is focused on God's people more so than a wall. The second thing that we've seen over and over again, and, and we've looked at it a variety of different ways, is that, man, opposition has just presented itself all the time, right? Like, as God's people uh, get into the work and they continue the work, opposition continues uh, to, uh, man, they, they continue just to come forward because why? Well, one thing we've said, and, and I want you to hear, we said this multiple times, because Satan, and we know this from God's Word, and we know this from life experience, Satan is, he, well, he's a turd. And so he continues to just bring opposition, right? While Satan is defeated, he is and will continue to seek to oppose the work of God's kingdom and God's people. And so with that, one thing I'll say is, man, and I was thinking about this actually this week, uh, it, man, why are we so surprised? Like, I don't know about you, but man, you ever face opposition or man, you just walk through something and you're just like, how, like, why in the world would, would the enemy want to attack? But why, like, we shouldn't be surprised in these moments. That, that's his MO. It has been his MO. And so why are we surprised? And not only that, uh, I think even to take it a step further, man, in the midst of that opposition, do we realize who our real enemy is? I don't know about you, but man, looking around and just, man, as we uh, work through, man, what it's like to uh, just be a human being right now, uh, man, I think a lot of times we've mixed up who our enemy is. That, that we spend more time angry and upset and in opposition towards others than we do our real enemy. But that's a sermon for another day, so let's continue. So those are the two themes we've seen kind of mark this series. But I want to present us with one thing that we're going to see in our time today. And it's this. The compromising nature of sin will always leave you wanting. 
The compromising nature of sin will always, every single time, leave you wanting. And Jesus is the only one who can deliver us from our sin and satisfy the need we truly long for. See, compromise, again, will always leave you wanting. I mean, we understand that just generally, right? Like, uh, man, just regular life stuff. Like, if you, uh, if you eat something that's not bluebell, like, if you eat other eyes, like, if you go to a majority of the Mexican food places here, man, you just get free soft serve the whole time, right? You don't have to eat a meal. Like, you just, uh, there's, there's dairy and there's whatever a cone's made out of. Uh, and man, you just, you can just eat them over and over again, but man, you're never satisfied, right? Because it's not bluebell. Like there's just something, it's satisfying. It's like drinking any other soft drink other than Dr. Pepper. Like it just doesn't satisfy, right? I go to Chipotle, like I love Chipotle. And I love like walking through the line because it's like you get to make it your own, you know. And, and I get through and they always ask me, hey, do you want a drink? And I'm like, yeah, I want a soft drink. And then I remember, man, Chipotle, they have Mr. Pibb and that's just water trash, okay? Like it's just, it doesn't even belong. And so I get up to the side and I'm like, oh no. And so I'll actually drink Coke before I'll drink Mr. Pibb because I'm like, it's not going to satisfy me. If you're a fan of the Houston Texans, right? Like it just never... If you're a fan of the Dallas Cowboys, okay, like me too, uh, they net, like I'm always left wanting, right? The glory days are gone, although I keep thinking they're going to come back. You see, when we compromise, like it, it always leaves us wanting. Not, and, and guess what? It doesn't all, it doesn't just affect us. Like those are silly things, but like, man, in terms of sin, like, man, when we compromise in sin, it always leaves us wanting. But guess what? It doesn't just affect us, right? Like, it affects other people. Your compromises affect others. And this is what we're going to find in our text today. You see, compromise, even on the heels of celebration, only leaves us wanting and desiring something that we cannot produce in and of ourselves. And so here's a quick summary of our last few weeks. The people celebrate the walls being rebuilt. And then what happens is we saw that there's this concern and this hunger for the Word of God. And as they, man, read the Word of God, it does what it always does. Is it, may, it reveals to us that, man, we are not enough. And so they are convicted and they spend time confessing their sin. And then last week, what Jeremy talked about is that in light of what God has done and who God is, they make a commitment to God. I mean, for us, like what we should see is that these things, these are to be all of life things for us. Like as we, man, realize, man, what Jesus has done for us, we celebrate as we, uh, man, have a care and a hunger for his word. We are drawn not only to, uh, man, encouragement and empowerment, but to moments of repentance and confession. And in doing so, we realize over and over and over again the deep covenant that God has for us. And so in light of who God is and what He's done, the people make a commitment to God. I love what Jeremy shared last week. He said, when God calls you to Himself through Jesus, you commit your life to Christ. When God calls you to Himself through Jesus, you commit your life to Christ. And so God's people, they take time and they make a commitment that conveys three main things. 
The first thing they committed themselves to is that they would be in the world, but not of the world, right? So we saw it in the text. They separated themselves, not in a way to say, hey, we are better than, we are above, but that, hey, we want to live God's way. We are going to look to the Word of God, and that's we are going to follow Him and Him alone. So while we are in the world, we are displaying what it looks like to follow God. That was commitment number one. Commitment number two is that they would prioritize corporate worship. So they see that they need to keep the Sabbath, that it was a day that they would uh, stop and cease from their work and that they would worship God. And then lastly, we saw that they made a commitment to be generous, specifically towards the house of God, what we would call today like the local church. So they make these serious commitments to God. And, and, and what happens, uh, we're not going to read through chapter 12. I'm going to read one verse. Uh, but what happens is God's people celebrate in chapter 12. They dedicate the walls and it says they dedicate them with glad thanksgiving, with singing, music, and sacrifice. They throw a huge party. Because of what God, because God has done a mighty work not only in them, but through them. And because God is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. It says this, if you have your Bibles, look at 1243. If not, it'll be on the screen. It says that they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. I don't know about you, just it's like they're rejoicing, but it's like the their joy is just, it, it's growing. It's this growing picture of just, man, great joy. Like they continue to realize what God has done. It says the women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Two, two things quickly here. Uh, really, kind of two questions. Uh, man, first, we are to be a people of rejoicing, and so are we. Like in your life, like what is it that has your joy? Like what is your joy, what is your celebration directed towards in life right now? And in your rejoicing, are others hearing it? Like, when was the last time you rejoiced in ways that celebrated what God has done? And who are you telling? You see, this news is too good to keep to yourself. It is to be shared. Now, I've said this before, like, you, you don't, we don't have to train anyone to talk about what they love, right? You don't have to train anyone to evangelize what they love. If you sit down with me long enough, I'm going to talk to you about why I think the Dallas Cowboys are the greatest team ever, right? Now, you may think I'm wrong in that. You are. But I'm going to tell you why I believe that. Like, and you don't have to, like, I don't have to be trained to do that. Like, I just grew up. Like, when Haley and I, like, man, I remember, like, when we, like, I still to this day, like, I want people to know, like, man, like, this is my wife. Amen. Like, praise God for giving me her. But I mean, we first got married. I wanted, like, everybody. Hey, I'm married, I married to Haley. Right? Like, I put a ring on it. Right? Like, like that, like, she is my wife and I love, and nobody had to tell me that. Because I love her. Hey, what, like, you, you don't have to be trained to talk about what you love. Like, you talk about it. Because you love it. 
So today, what do you love? And man, I, I would encourage you to think back, like, what are you talking about? Maybe some of us today, like, we just love to complain. We just love to criticize. We just love to point out. What do you love? And what are you expressing joy over? Is it being heard far away? So the wall is finished. The people are back in the city. They are rejoicing. And everyone lived happily ever after. That's not what happens. And while we could hope for that and just move on, that's not what we find taking place in Nehemiah 13. In truth, what we find in this chapter today is Nehemiah having to confront the people of God. Because guess what? Those three commitments they made, man, they turned back, they turned their back on all three of them. And so what I want to do in our time today is we're just going to look at those three areas of compromise. So that we can see how these compromises leave them. But also like we even see ourselves and how we are tempted and even make these compromises. And how they leave us wanting. And then we're going to look at how this passage presents us with the way that God fulfills the deeper wanting that we have and we can't fix in and of ourselves. And so let's look now at Nehemiah 13. We're going to begin in verses 4 through 9. And Nehemiah... Uh, 13, 4 through 9, then we're going to look at uh, a, a passage a little later in the text. We see the first compromise when it comes uh, to their commitment. You know, they had said, hey, we're going to be a people that are in the world, but what? Not of the world, but they compromise here, beginning in verse 4. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessel, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. All right, so what is shared is that some time before this response, if you actually go to verses 1 through 3, it talks about, uh, man, that this has already kind of happened and the people end up responding to it. We'll get there in a moment. But uh, Nehemiah heads back to be with the king. And while he's gone, one of the priests who was related to Tobiah the Ammonite, which is a figure, I don't know if you know, it's a figure we've already seen in this story multiple times. He's always opposing the work that God's trying to do in the rebuilding of the wall. What he does is he weasels his way into the temple. He weasels his way into the place that was made for God and the worship of God by his people. And he sets up a room in the place where offerings were to be stored. You see, what we already find is that while God's people had committed to be in the world but not of the world, they are allowing the world to infiltrate temple worship. 
go along with that. We'll get here in just a moment. But what has happened is like, man, there was to be like in verses one through three, it says that no Ammonite is supposed to be in there because of a curse that had taken place previously. This is a place that was meant for God and God's people. And yet, man, this guy is just, man, he's come in. He's set up shop. He's living in the temple. God's people have already compromised being in the world but not of the world and they're allowing the world to infiltrate their temple worship. And I think as we, as we hear this and we think about our own lives, I mean, what it means for us to be the church. Again, the church is not a building. It's the body of Christ. Like as we are the church, like, man, I think that we, uh, we would be foolish to believe that this is not a threat to our own worship. Really, there, there are, uh, as I kind of thought about, man, this threat, there's kind of two pendulums of opposition and then, and then really a third way that is what I would call a gospel culture way of living life as God's people that doesn't compromise. And so let's look at the, the, the two pendulum swings of uh, this threat to worship and culture. So as the church, one of the things we have to realize is that, man, it would be really easy for us to just... Uh, run over to one side and just be totally opposed to the culture, right? Like, hey, we're going to be in the world but not of the world, but actually we're just going to be opposed to all of that. We're going to keep everyone at arm's length. We're going to sit. We're actually going to be antagonistic. Uh, all we're going to do is yell and spit vile things at them and just judge them because we're better than them. So we're going to keep every, we need to keep everything clean in here, right? Which I think if you think about that, like, <laughs> if that's the case, none of us are getting in. Right. And yet we can sit back and think that like we can have that type of pride where we think, no, we've got it together. They don't keep them out there. We need to stay here behind our little walls and our little kingdoms. And so we have that side, which is a threat to worship, right? Because I don't believe in any way, shape or form that God has called us to that because I believe that's actually anti-gospel because what does Jesus do? Man, he comes and he enters into the mess. But on the other side, if we're not careful, we can be what? We can be swallowed by the culture. We can allow the culture to define who God is. And we can allow culture to tell the church, uh, man, what sin is and what sin isn't. To minimize sin and the function of the church. Man, there's a threat that our worship could begin to look no different than what's going on around us. We can allow culture to set up shop and drown out and distract us from the worship of God. So you have those two ways. I mean, I hope we see that neither one of those things are going to do what needs to be done. Neither one of those things are what we're called to. But there is a third way. It's what we would call gospel culture. And when we talk about worship and gospel culture, what I'm talking about is this. It's that we would be in it, but not of that we would display the good news in word and deed. That we would share the reality of brokenness, the hope of the cross, and the transformative power of grace. That we would invite others in, but we do not compromise the truth, glory, and holiness of He who invited us in and redeemed us from our sin. This is what we're after. That's what we're called to. And so we get this picture with Tobiah in the temple, but this isn't the only instance that reveals their compromise. We see a further instance later in the chapter in verses 23 through 25. It says this, 
In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. But only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Okay, so not only was Tobiah residing in the chamber of the temple, but what we see is that God's people have once again married women of other nations. They've given their sons and their daughters over to other nations. And what I it just struck me is that it, so much so is that the children were no longer speaking the language of God's people, but they were speaking the languages of others. Now, we could probably just brush over that, but that's so key because, man, what is God's word? Like God's word is in Hebrew, right, for these people. Like they needed to hear it and know it, and yet they couldn't even speak it. And so for us today, like what language are we speaking? Like, like what, what? And I don't mean like just for our children. Like what language are we passing down to our kids, to our neighbors in our workplaces? Do we sound like the culture? Or do we sound like someone who's been transformed by the mercy and grace of Jesus? You see, we are to proclaim the redemptive language of the gospel. How we speak matters and what we proclaim to others matters. And I hope you understand, again, this isn't solely for those who have kids. We are all, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are, you are to be speaking the language of redemption. And you're first to speak that to yourself. You know why? Because no one lies to you more than you do. And so you need the gospel just as much today as you did yesterday. And you will need it just as much tomorrow as you do today. You need to hear it. You need to know it. It needs to be on your lips. But also we are to proclaim it to one another as the body of Christ. And all the while to those we are around who need to hear of the hope that we have in Jesus. Today, are you living life in response to your daily need of the gospel and, and the continual transformation by the gospel? Or have you, have I traded that which has saved us for things which have no life and make us look no different than the world around us? You see, in life, either Christ is central or something else darn sure will be. Therefore, we are not to attach or marry ourselves to anything that is opposed to the very word of God. The, the way you combat compromise and the want that it leaves is by knowing the word. And man, if you're going to know the Word, you've got to be in the Word. You've got to hunger for the Word. You've got to desire it. To pour over it. So let's look at Nehemiah's response. Because I don't know if as we read that, like, man, he's pretty heated, right? Like, he's mad, mad. Earlier in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah sees some stuff. It says he went away for a moment to kind of catch his breath. That's not what we get here. Like, he lets him, he lets him know. So let's look at his first response, response towards Tobiah. Man, he, he, it says he throws out Tobiah's stuff. 
He takes all of his furniture, everything that he had in the temple, and he just casts it out. And he says he cleanses the area and he brings back its purpose. And in our own lives, it's to be the same towards sin. I love what happens here in, in Nehemiah's response because it's actually a perfect picture of what we are going to see uh, this week uh, in the book of Mark through our reading plan. Because uh, what happens is Jesus, he, he enters into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple and he surveys everything that's going on and he leaves. And guess what happens the next day? He starts overturning tables. He makes a whip, starts overturning tables and driving people out. Derek Kidner says that Nehemiah stormed in as violently as one day his master would. Love what Jesus, Jesus, when he drives them out, he says, man, this is supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So he confronts Tobiah, he responds towards Tobiah, but he also responds towards the people. He confronts them, he curses them, it says he beat some, he pulled out their hair. He's not playing around. He calls them to repentance and obedience. So how are we to respond? You see, we are to live in light of the Word of God, teaching it to others, discipling, training, and modeling. I love Nehemiah 13, 1-3. It does this. It says they read the Word of God and they realize that they're to be separate. They're not to be marrying people from other nations. And so that's what they do. They say, okay, we're going to respond to the Word. So when we think about how we are to respond, I would say this, if we are to have a hunger and a care for God's Word, it begins with you. If we are to be a people that aren't in the world, but are in the world but not of the world, we have to learn that, man, in these moments, let us first get the log out of our own eyes and then learn to go to others in humility and love. To graciously call one another to repentance. But guess what? We don't confront with curses. We don't confront with beatings and the pulling of hair because Jesus already received that for us. Which should give us all the more reason to intentionally seek to purge the sin from our midst. And so we see that God's people compromise commitment one. But let's look now. In verses 15 through 18, we see that they compromise uh, their commitment number two that they made last week, which is prioritizing corporate worship. Beginning in verse 15, it says this, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, or Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? You are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. This text goes on. And actually, Nehemiah goes to those that are selling. He threatens them. He's like, you come in here. I'm going to lay hands on you. Like, it's not going to be good. And so in response to commitment two, which was to keep the Sabbath, what Nehemiah notices is that the people have compromised the day of rest by working. 
While the Sabbath was meant to be a reminder of the mercy of God who gave them rest from their enemies and called them to rest from their work. That goes all the way back to creation, right? So to trust that God is enough and that God will provide, they're not only working, they're allowing others to bring stuff in so that they can buy. Man, if this is not a model of our culture, I don't know what is. We are a people who don't know how to rest because we, again, have become drunk on the lies of the world around us that tells us that to, for you to find fulfillment and to receive maybe even your own worship in your little kingdom that you must perform rather than rest. Because we don't know how to rest, man, we struggle to really worship. How many of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I just want you to think for a moment, like, as you even sit in here on a Sunday morning, like your mind's elsewhere. How many of you are already in Monday or Tuesday of next week? And how many of you already feel weary? Even on Sunday, because you're on Monday or Tuesday of next week. And God's word would say, man, let today be today. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Today's enough. And then may we be a people that rest. See, we are distracted, distraught, and discouraged because we run our lives on the fuel of performance that's never enough rather than resting in the finished work of the cross each and every moment of our lives. Jeremy shared this last week. Man, disciples, those redeemed by the blood of Jesus, man, we are at rest every day. Not just every day, every moment. We are always in Sabbath because our rest is not found in what we do for six days and then rest on one, but on what Jesus did upon the cross once for all time. That's why He can say it's finished. And so when is the last time you just enjoyed the rest that comes by way of the Gospel? When was the last time you cut off the distraction of those who seek to sell and promote busyness and a false gospel of satisfaction? And guess what? I'm not just talking about Sunday, okay? It's always coming at us, right? At 9 o'clock this morning, for many of you, you got a, a, an hourglass picture on your phone that said, hey, this is how much the world was, it, maybe you were buying into what the world was telling you to perform in. This many hours, you were after that. So Nehemiah, he calls his people and says, hey, remember. Remember that we are to be a people that rest. And so he shuts it down in 19 through 22. Again, I said, he goes so far to threaten those who seek to distract the people from rest. Man, let us make war against our enemy who seeks to draw us away from the soul rest found in Jesus. May we know the tactics of the enemy and may we, in response, prioritize worship. So this leads to compromise of commitment number three, which we saw last week was, man, that we're called to be a generous people. So look at verses 10 through 14. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. 
Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurers over the storehouses. Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah the, of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mattathiah, <laughs> Madaniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. Okay, so in the midst of realizing the issues with Tobiah and the Sabbath breaking, Nehemiah also takes note that, man, the people have stopped being a generous people towards the work of God in the temple. They'd stopped giving their tithe and not they, they were just focused on their own pocketbooks, so much so that those that were responsible for the temple, they had to go and like work elsewhere. They were taking care of themselves and themselves alone. And as we hear that, man, how quick we are to forget that God takes care of our needs. How tempted we are to forget that He takes care of our needs and turn inward to pursue and protect the needs and security of self. Just a few things of note here. Man, uh, I believe one of the main avenues that Satan seeks to lull us to sleep uh, is in terms of our treasure. And what I mean by that, I mean our pocketbooks. Specifically our giving. And, and the reason, I think there's a lot of reasons why. One, because man, we just discard it like, think, oh, somebody else will do that. Somebody else will take my portion too. It's okay. Or we just immediately, like any any time, and, and this is always a weird thing. We, we It shouldn't be a weird thing. We start talking about finances in the church. People are like, no, you're just trying to steal my money, Kyle. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to present to you what the Scriptures say. But we just use that as a quick cop-out, right? But I think, man, even to press a little harder... Man, I believe that the reason that we're lulled to sleep in this way, the reason that we don't like talking about it, the reason that we cover it up is because it's the easiest one to hide. Guess what? You can cover up this sin by looking really good towards others. You can wear the badge of honor that you look like you're against the culture, that you're in the world but not of the world, and yet still not be giving. Guess what? You can be in church every day and yet not give a dime. And I don't want you to hear that again. We said it last week. Like if you've been burned, like, like, like we're not like the issue for us. Like we're not saying, hey, we want your money. We want your money. We're saying this is what God's word says. And if we're going to preach the whole counsel of the scriptures, if we're going to disciple in every area of life, this has to be one of those areas. This is what's going on in the text. And so Nehemiah confronts this. And we must do the same because generosity or the lack thereof is a heart issue. Because guess what? It's a gospel issue. We give generously in light of the generous grace and mercy we've been given. And so may we quit holding or hiding behind the facade of generosity if we are not being generous to the place God calls us to be generous first, which is the church. The local body. And so we see that, man, all three of these commitments they've made, man, they've already compromised. Man, we see Nehemiah's response. We get all of this. And so let's close. I'm going to read the last two verses of Nehemiah 13, verses 30 and 31. It says this. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign 
and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And that's it. We've, we've walked through this amazing story of the work of God in reviving and rebuilding the people. We see their care for His Word, the conviction and confession of sin, the celebration. Uh, you know, we see the compromise and them being confronted. And then the story just ends. It's like it just gets all the way up here and we see this and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, they, they've been confronted again. They're going to do it this time. And then it, remember me, oh God. Story ends. And talk about anticlimactic. You see, this is a story that in the end leaves us wanting. Here we see that even in the midst of a great work of revival and rebuilding, there is still a need that needs to be met. Because guess what? While the work was finished, it wasn't finished. Because walls, no matter how tall, how thick, how formidable, walls do nothing to save us from that which is going on inside of our hearts. Again, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about walls in your own life right now. Whatever those walls are in your life, it doesn't matter how tall, thick, or formidable you think they are. Nothing protects you from what needs to be taken care of here. You can't build them high enough. You can't work hard enough. It's not about the walls. It's never been. It never will be. Guess what? Jesus is the only one that can finish the work. He's the only one that can finish the work in your life. You can't do it. And so we look to the Word, but also you have to look to the Word that put on flesh. We have to look to Christ. For He is the hope that we stand. He is the only one who could say that it was finished and it truly be finished. Guess what? Jesus took our guilt, sin, and shame. He took our cursing, our beating in our place. He was on the cross and He died. Not so that a great wall would be built for the purpose. But, but not so the great wall would be built, but for the purpose of the veil being torn from top to bottom that separated us from the presence of God. So that we might draw near to the God of mercy who gives us rest and deserves our worship. That's what the story of Nehemiah is pointing to. That's what all of Scripture is pointing to. Every story in the Scriptures, no matter how great they are, just feels a little anticlimactic because guess why? Everything is pointing to the One who deserves all the glory and honor and praise, Jesus. And so while this looks to be a story that leaves us wanting, and ultimately it is, man, we have hope today. We have hope because we have a full picture of the good news that the story is pointing to. And so may we then proclaim this hope as we are in the world, but not of the world. May we be a gospel culture. May our joy overflow into what we say. May we rest moment by moment, not just one day a week in the finished work of the cross and by living lives that are generous in light of the generosity we've received in Jesus. And today I want to invite you into this hope. 
But maybe today, like, the, the, maybe, like, I want to invite you into this hope for your first time. Maybe you're running, performing. Maybe you spent your whole life building walls. They just keep crumbling and you don't understand why. It's because you can't build them fast enough or high enough. And even if you could, like, it wouldn't take care of what's going on in your heart. Man, run to Jesus today. Turn to Him. Maybe today, maybe you know Jesus and you just need to turn back to Him. Guess what? I don't know about you, but while I can know here that, man, the walls are broken down and I don't have to build them anymore, man, I'm, sometimes I think I'm pretty good at, at mixing concrete and building walls, right? I can do it now. I've learned enough. I can go back, like, let me just take care of it. But no, like, I need to continually run to Jesus. So I want to invite you to that today. I want to invite you to worship by both the Word and in the context of community. And then lastly, man, I want to invite you into this hope next week as we celebrate the reality of the hope we talk about each and every week, right? Like, that's what I love. Like, we believe that, man, we're talking about the glory and hope of Jesus each and every week, not just one week a month. Today, as we started our time, we read about the one who would come into Jerusalem to complete the work of revival and rebuilding that we couldn't. And he did it by giving himself in our place. Jesus would survey the brokenness of our worship. He would cleanse the temple of our hearts. And He generously gave His life so that we might live abundantly generous lives. That's what I want to invite you to today. So I'm going to have the team come back up. And man, we're going to spend some time in response. And man, what I would like you to do is just, man, uh, maybe uh, as you think about just this time today, maybe, man, spend some time thinking about, man, uh, what have you been joyful about lately? Who are you telling Maybe it's been a while since you just gave God glory for what He's done and remembered who He is and what He's done. Maybe today you just need to be present and rest. But I would encourage you to take that further and say, Jesus, how do I learn to be at rest at all times? It only comes by remembering that He's our rest. Believing and having faith that you can't do enough. I want to invite you to the hope that's only found in Him. If you don't know Jesus today, I invite you to man, come to know Him. You can uh, talk to myself or uh, Pastor Jeremy as well. Man, we'd love to talk to you about the hope of Jesus. But I also encourage you, man, go out and talk about the hope of Jesus to others if you know Him. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come today and share in communion. Um, and we do this on a weekly basis because we want to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ of man what has been purchased uh, on our behalf the life that we have only comes by him and so if you're a follower of Jesus we invite you to come you can either take one of the cups and some bread or you can dip the bread in the cup they're both the same they're both juice you take that man take that time to remember to reorient your worship on what Jesus has done if you're not a follower of Jesus we ask that you not partake not because we think we're better than you, but man, we believe in what Jesus paid was costly. It was his whole life. And so, uh, man, we, uh, this is a significant act of worship for us. And again, if that's you today, man, come talk to me. I want to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus, to give your life to him. And then after a couple of minutes, um, Kay's going to ask us to stand and we're going to worship.
We're going to proclaim that Jesus is better than every other thing. So let me pray for us and we'll enter into this time. Jesus, we thank you that you are better. We thank you that we can look to you. God, we thank you while we are tempted to compromise and look to other things you did not. God, may that give us great hope. May may that spur us to confession and repentance and deeper worship. But not only that, may it cause us to proclaim the joy of the resurrection, of new life. May we rest in You. May we be in the world, but not of the world. May we be generous with our entire lives. We give You glory and honor. You're the only one worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.